Well, it was dubbed as a big week for Norwich City and it has proven to me the promotion race has uh, been shot wide open after a week of fairly disappointing results from a Norwich City perspective. This is uh, this week's Pinkin.com Norwich City podcast. Of course, you can listen to the show on Future Radio uh, 107.8 FM as well. I'm Connor Southwell, joined by Canaries correspondent Dave Freezer and Paddy Davitt. Um, Pad, let's start with you. It's two points in three games. Three shots on target in three games. And it's fair to say there's a little bit of concern in the air. How would you sum up the last week for Norwich City? Not a good one, mate. No, definitely not. I probably can't think. Probably as bad a week as they've had in this season, I would have thought. Um, you know, two goalless draws continuing a theme of attacking-wise. They're, def- they're definitely not clicking at the moment. We'll get into that in more depth, I'm sure. But... Uh, you know, Borough and Millwall, and then Swansea had the air of, for me, it could go that way, as it did, 2-0 defeat Friday night, but the manner of it as well. You know, I thought they were very good in terms of general play for the first half. I thought they were dictating, um, carved out one or two chances. Pookie had a big chance, pulled it wide, but, you know, Tim Krull would do that. Such a rarity um, in such a big game. It kind of felt, that's kind of where Norwich are at the minute in this sort of fallow period, compounded then with the, the second goal and the timing of it just after half-time, you know, whatever Daniel Farkas said to those players have almost gone out the window because Swansea are so good defensively. 15 goals conceded to that point in the league, 2-0 down, very difficult, if not impossible, to see any team in this league um, getting getting that uh, overturned. So, yeah, and then obviously then Saturday, 24 hours later, having having lost to Swansea, you see Brentford put four past the Borough team who really Norwich failed to break down seven days hence to move within a point as we sit here today recording this Sunday morning with a game in hand. That game in hand is Reading this following Wednesday. You would imagine uh, they'll get the point they need because they've got a vastly superior goal difference. So in all probability, Norwich will kick off against Stoke uh, this coming Saturday um, off top spot. I haven't checked, but it's been a very... Long period of time, it feels, since they have been leading. So it all just underlines that, you know, let's, let's keep it in context. There's so many games left and there will be, as Ben Gibson said, after the Swansea game, plenty of twists and turns. But at the moment, it feels like, you know, Norwich had got a nice insurance. That's gone. They've been pulled back into the chasing pack. Not notionally Brentford-Swansea. I think I'm looking at the table now. I see Reading, Watford, Bournemouth a few points too further adrift for me. I think it's basically two from three. Um, and at the minute of those three, there's one team who don't have any momentum or go forward and it's Norwich. So that needs to change and change quickly. Yeah, absolutely. Dave, we, we often talk about the championship as um, being able to sort of catch you on the chin, maybe when you least expect it, perhaps when you think you've cracked it, then it, it does just deliver a little bit of a blow. This is, Definitely a blip for Norwich City now, and and uh, you were obviously in the, in the press conference with Daniel Farker on Thursday ahead of the game, and he delivered a what twelve minute response to maybe critics um, speaking about Norwich City's lack of of cut through in terms of their attack. But yet again on on Friday evening, it was it was another game that maybe flattered to deceive in terms of Norwich City's attacking play. Obviously missing Emi Buendia. What what do you make of of that at the moment? How do they rectify what they've been trying to do in in the final third? Yeah, it's been a funny old week, isn't it? You know, deadline day on Monday, the Millwall game on the Tuesday, Daniel's rant Thursday, and then that game on the Friday night. And that probably shouldn't be overlooked either, that Swansea didn't have a midweek game. Norwich had to go to Millwall because they progressed in the FA Cup. Um, so that Coventry game was responsible for that, essentially, or the first what eight minutes of that game against Coventry uh, when they got 2-0 ahead. Um, that's why they had the extra game. And as soon, well, as soon as Swansea were one nil up, let alone two, I don't get the feeling that anyone really believed Norwich were coming back into that. They, it felt like they were kind of running on empty, and that the game was done because we knew that Swansea were the meanest defence in the division. So, yeah, I mean, the rant from Daniel, um, a good twelve minutes of it, you know, it's certainly not the first, won't be the last um, from him because he he does like to sort of get going at times, doesn't he? And, um, I did feel like there was there was an element of um, he'd sort of pre-planned it because of some of the comments that were in there, like saying, um, "Oh, it's not that it's not like you just win forty-six matches and get one hundred and thirty-eight points." You know, he, he just had that number off the top of his head. So I think that was kind of a bit of a pent-up frustration that was there. He wanted to get off his chest, and because the the question was 
um pretty innocuous really and and it <laughs> prompted that long old response and I think it was just a classic manager's tactic of trying to deflect some attention away from the players saying, you know, I've got the broad shoulders to take this on. If anyone's doubting my players, fair enough. But he will have known um, full well that they were going into a very difficult game. And once you actually shoot yourselves in the foot twice as well, of course, it becomes an incredibly difficult game. So if, if they'd have gone and won on Friday night, he'd have looked like a genius, wouldn't he? Because it would have been hailed as the sort of motivational turning point that that helped his players get to that point but you know when when Tim Krull just inexplicably drops a ball and drops his first clanger in a long long time yeah it's a very big uphill battle I think I tweeted at half time on Friday that, that games like that and, and there wasn't a lot in the game really uh, usually decided by mistakes or brilliance and it, it kind of felt like it, it, it was it was a case of the two with um, with two of the goals and, and we'll come on to the game more specifically in a moment but Pad, you will have seen the the sort of reaction that, that that game has had on social media from Norwich fans, and obviously with no fans in the ground and um, no real connection with them at the moment. Social media is kind of the only way we have to gauge response from from supporters, and there's obviously plenty of Norwich fans who aren't on social media. But it, it does seem like concern is probably the overriding emotion. Self doubt, I'd throw in there as well. Norwich have been so comfortable so far this season. This is the one sort of major wobble they've had, and um, it seems to have been greeted with a little bit of of anxiety I guess on social media from supporters can you understand that yeah of course you can yeah because you know there's that phrase I won't repeat it here um HM something the league uh which seemed to be doing the rounds before Christmas um and however many fans were buying into that the, the inference was that this is this is over by the shout in Norwich are just too good at this league too consistent not particularly in top gear in terms of attacking play, but still were able to grind out wins and wins and wins. Um, and in that context, you know, it has probably come as a shock to a few people that, you know, the week we've just discussed has, has essentially brought them back into the mix. It, it's not even now about running away with the league. It's will they finish in the top two? And then them sort of questions certainly were, were not being asked probably prior to the Barnsley game. You know, I've seen another, talking to social media, I've seen another sort of tangent since the weekend that adds that, Barnsley game and the approach of Daniel to get fringe players minutes and and the sort of performance that that maybe produced as a result, you know, very poor that day, didn't really offer anything going forward. Um, has that now had, a, had almost a seeping effect into the league? I think that's too simplistic to say, but, um, you know, it probably it's just a continuation of the theme. You know, four games now, including that Barnsley game, no goals for a Daniel Farker team is, well, again, I'm, I'm sure that if we were to go back and look forensically since he came in in 2017, there may have been another run of a similar anemic nature, but I, I can't think of too many and certainly not since he started to turn the ship around after that debut season. So the, this is uncharted territory really for Daniel Farker and Norwich in terms of the, the lack of attacking output. And I think it's elements like that. I think, I would like to think most Norwich fans will, I mean, as we record here today, we're talking Brentford could go top, but for all the toing and froing, for all the frustration uh, with facets of Norwich's play, they are still, as we record this, top of the table. So I think most fans can see that, uh, you know, this isn't something that's disappearing over the hill. It, it's, it just feels a little bit more uncomfortable than it probably was, was 10 days, two weeks ago. And, uh, and in that context, it's, it's quite understandable. But I think a lot of it also is Norwich could have had a stumble and other teams were not taking advantage. But you see now Swansea, you see the run Brentford on. Is that 19 unbeaten? It's the longest unbeaten run in English football at the minute. These teams are taking the advantage of Norwich's stumbles to really put the, 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 their feet to the, to the fire, as it were. And, and that's probably combined with the issues we can get into with, with why Norwich are not doing what they should be doing. It's probably why there is a little bit of an unease, but you know, I've seen, I've seen within that though to counterbalance. I've seen plenty of, of realism as well. I mean, following on from what Daniel was trying to get across pre pre match Friday, that you know anybody really who who didn't expect this to go the way of two seasons ago when it was on that occasion Norwich Leeds Sheffield United every week nip and tuck. You know, I, I even I remember now. You know, every weekend it was kind of you know with the staggered kickoffs for television. Sheffield United would kick off early and they'd either get their blow in first or they'd stumble and that would then have almost an effect on how Norwich performed later in the day and then Leeds would do something and it was the tip for tap. Well, take Leeds and Sheffield United out of the equation, add Swansea and Brentford and we're back there again. So 
you know, it shouldn't be a huge surprise in the championship, this championship season of all seasons as well, given the concertina nature of the fixture list, that, you know, it's going to be a lot tighter than it probably felt it was two weeks ago. And that's why I think increasingly, and Daniel touched on it, I noticed after the game uh, Friday, he's talking up again the experience factor that they have been over this course and distance, him and the majority of those players, not every player, but the majority, and they know what to expect. They know now when they get to this stage of a season in the Championship, when it's nip and tuck, how to ride it out and come out the other side. And uh, and I think increasingly that will become a big factor. Allied to, of course, Swansea and Brentford, maybe a bit harsh to say, but they both choked last season. Swansea less so. I mean, Brentford were in an automatic spot until the last week of the season and basically opened the door again for West Brom and then got beaten in the playoff final. Swansea probably overachieved to get to the playoffs, so maybe less so. But both of those weren't ultimately able to get the deal done last season. Norwich were able to get it done two years ago. So you'd like to think, yes, Norwich fans are concerned, but but putting it in the context of this is the championship and, you know, Norwich will come again. There's no doubt about it. You know, Emi Buendi is back this weekend. That's a massive plus. Um, I think some of those players who aren't at the level they need to be, they, that will turn again and, uh, and then we'll see. And also the flip side, Brentford aren't going to continue to put four Past every team they play. Ivan Tony isn't going to continue to score one and two every game. Swansea, the thing with Swansea defensively, they're brilliant. But, you know, albeit Norwich gifted them two goals the other night, they don't score a huge amount of goals. So there will be games now down the stretch where they're not as solid defensively. And then it's can they find the goals? I'm not convinced by Andre Alou and Jamal Lowe as a front two in terms of goal out. But that was Alou's first goal since Boxing Day. Jamal Lowe, I've seen him twice now, and, um, and and he misses a lot of chances. He gets in good positions, but he's not clinical for me. So, you know, yes, right here, right now, it's it's right to be concerned. But I think, you know, if we look at the bigger picture, um, the trends that we're seeing now will not continue to be the trends. It won't continue to be Norwich struggling for goals and points. It won't be Brentford scoring like it's going out of fashion. It won't be necessarily Swansea as good as they are defensively right now because... There's one massive intangible between now and the end of the season, and it's pressure. What will pressure do to these sets of players, the head coaches, even the fan base? Um, and because we know Norwich have handled the pressure, I'm still fairly confident that when the dust settles, they will be one of the two, uh, those three who get promoted automatically. Yeah, and I think I think the general consensus with Swansea is despite their very, very good defensive record, maybe their performances of late, maybe similar to Norwich, haven't perhaps been up to uh, up to the standard that, that maybe they've set prior to the season. Brentford are, are just unrelenting at the moment, aren't they? Dave, um, Paddy referenced Emi Buendia there and his influence. We were obviously covering the game from, from home and on the TV they had a, a nice graphic pre-match and it showed Norwich's record with and without Emi Buendia since he signed. I think it's it's one game, one in 16 that, that he's, he's missed now, including Friday night, um, which was Huddersfield, of course, and they were sort of gifted that, weren't they, because of Richard Stearman slip. How pivotal is he to, to Norwich's side? Is it simply a case of where you just throw Emi Buendia back in and suddenly Norwich City are a slick, coherent attacking side again? Or is it a bit more complex than that for you? Well, we, we've got a hope so, haven't we? <laughs> um, it's, it's feeling like um, that spell, isn't it, at the, towards the end of the title winning season when he was suspended after that red card against QPR when Todd Cantwell came in and got a lot of flack for not filling the uh, boots of, of Emi. And uh, I guess... Boheta is sort of taking on that status this time, isn't he? Because he was the man that Daniel turned to and he has both not looked a like-for-like replacement and has not taken the chance to to impress. Um, but how do you replace Emi Buendia in the Championship? He, he's pretty much the best player, isn't he? He's, he shouldn't be playing in the Championship, probably. And if he hadn't have mounted these uh, this record of red cards, he may well have already gone because that might just be one of the... Uh, points that's held back bigger teams from from splashing out but you know if he gets back to the form he was showing recently for the rest of the campaign and doesn't get another red card um hopefully then I think most Norwich fans are already expecting that he'll probably be gone in the summer regardless of Norwich going up or not and that is quite a worry isn't it given what we saw given what we've seen in the last two and two and a bit games because he not only is a, a pivotal attacking point for Norwich and a complete um, point of difference to any other team in the championship, but he also has a huge bearing on Timu Puki, doesn't he? And Daniel had even said it in his press conference, pre-match press conference. I, I asked whether 
Lucas Rupp would be the most like-for-like replacement for Wendy on the right, expecting that he might bring McLean back into midfield and that maybe Rupp could, you know, not in the same level, but he would be closer to a Buendia than Hernandez or Pojeta were. And, and Daniel did sort of... Um, did sort of agree with that and 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 said that Pojeta is not a player who's going to create. He's somebody that wants to be fed by a playmaker, by a Vrancic, by a Kentwell. And that's exactly what we've seen, isn't it? So I think if maybe Jordan Hugel hadn't have got his injury at Barnsley, then this little spell um, would maybe, without Wendy, they could have gone Hugel up top, Campwell in the middle and Hernandez and Pojeta either side and play in a bit more of a traditional style. But this has always been a big frustration for a lot of Norwich fans, isn't it? That this is Daniel's way. And I think it's basically the way coaches are educated now, isn't it? Because it's how Guardiola does it, is that you have your plan A, you stick to your plan A, you work on your plan A every single day in training. And then you, the, the squad has to fit around that. That There is not a plan B uh, and, unless you're chasing a game and, and they go to a 3-5-2 or something for the last 15 minutes. Daniel Farker has his system. His players are drilled on that. And that's what they go with all the time. So maybe if we take that further, it's actually a recruitment issue. And we're seeing that the the depth that Norwich have been able to bring into the club means that they haven't got somebody who can come in and step into Emi Buendia's shoes. But to repeat what I said a little bit earlier, how do you replace Emi Buendia? Because he was a, a brilliant signing in 2018, who was, you know, a, a bit of a gamble that really, really paid off. And um, yeah, we just got to hope that he comes back in against Stoke and provides that spark. Because the the one thing I think you can say is that Campwell did respond to what Farker had wanted, and it felt to me that one that pass that he played through to Pookie midway through the first half at nil nil, exactly the chance that Pookie wants. Once he'd wasted that and dragged it wide, he hesitated, didn't get his feet sorted. It felt to me that even Campwell's body language was a bit like, oh, come on, <laughs> I'll put it on the plate for you. And, and now it's missed. And it just felt like it was downhill from there. So, yeah, a tough little spell, a, a reality check. But just just a Pad mentioned the, the dry spells. The first time in the championship they've gone three games um, without a goal under Farker. I think it's the first time since 2008 under Glenn Roder. Uh, in the championship, they've gone three games. But of course, end of last season, they went five games without scoring, didn't they? On the during the implosion, so um, <laughs> that was quite recent. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, yeah, it's, it's I think it'd be interesting to see what sort of effect Emmy Buendia can have on this Norwich side. So if they go and win four 0 next week, and Buendia gets a hat trick, then uh, that might show how how pivotal he is. But look, when when any side missing a, a player of his quality, I think would would certainly feel that. Um, Pat, just to to play devil's advocate a little bit, I know there's been a lot of emphasis on Norwich City's poor attacking um, displays. They've played three really good defensive sides, uh, Neil Warnock, Middlesbrough, who albeit lost 4-1 to Brentford um, yesterday, but I don't think that's any disgrace in the current climate. Millwall, who have drawn a lot of the den, and Swansea, of course, who have conceded the least goals in the in, in the division. All of those sides play free at the back as well, so Timu Puki's been a, a lone striker against three central defenders. Do you think it's, it's a case maybe of combined factors rather than just Norwich City not particularly having the same um, the same quality in terms of attacking, do we also have to praise the opponents for the way they've set up and the way they've defended against Norwich recently? Yeah, I think that's a fair shout. Um, just had a quick look back at the results there and within this recent run, it's probably Cardiff and Bristol City, but both of those teams allowed Norwich to play to take your point. Um, they almost were willing to engage and you go back to Cardiff, that, that goal uh Campbell finished, but I mean, that started with Norwich's two centre-backs, plenty of time to play through. Mario had an involvement there, Kenny McLean, uh, Hugo with the shot, you know, a free-flowing move where they could basically, it was peak Farker, it was it was time and space and runners, and, and those th- three teams have played recently, I don't recall any spaces afforded to them on that level, so yeah, undoubtedly, I think that's it's worth reiterating because obviously we we do filter everything through and inevitably through not, what Norwich aren't doing. But, you know, those three teams in particular have, have, have nullified Norwich. So while there are issues, clearly structural issues with individual players, with the setup of the team for Norwich at the minute, I think they are being compounded by probably three opponents you would least want to face if you're on a, a run where goals are a bit hard to come by. And, you know trying to think back because it's Stoke this weekend. I mean, that was a very high-scoring affair that night. Um, but, you know, ultimately Norwich were 3-0 up and cruising and then then, uh, then the wheels came off a touch. But uh, but they certainly 
were afforded a bit more room than they have been the last three games. So maybe there's a course for optimism there, although you would think Michael O'Neill won't come to Cairo and be quite as open as they were in the potteries. So um, because he's, a, you know, he is a very, very good coach. Look at the job he did with limited resources in Northern Ireland. You can be guaranteed that him and his analysts and his coaches will be pouring over the last three games and how those three teams have effectively shut down Norwich and he will be looking to repeat it as well. So this isn't going to get any easier now. Basically, Norwich, whether it's through their own shortcomings or whether it's excellent um, tactical templates from opponents, they've now been shown to be vulnerable. And quickly, the rest of the championship, certainly the teams they've got left to play, will be cottoning on and uh, and trying to put the same sort of traps in place. So this is a big week now. You know, this is a, a talking of Dave's point. You know, there's no midweek game. He's got a week at Colney to work on a lot of things, confidence apart from anything else with certain individuals. And uh, and there won't be any excuses for Saturday. They, they need to perform. Uh, he won't be able to turn around and talk about the grueling schedule, the, the, lot, the lot of travelling, the fact that Swansea had their feet up on the sofa. None of that will wash this coming weekend. It really is um, potentially a defining performance. Not so much result because there's so many games left to play, so many points left to play. But, you know, can you imagine if we're just, the next pod we're discussing is um, another blank, another inability to put a side away, then, you know, it's a lot harder to sell that when it's Stoke with the greatest respect to Stoke than it is Swansea away or, dare I say, Middlesbrough and Millwall. So um, this feels like a big week and a big game coming up now. Yeah, no doubt about it. Before we reflect on, on the game in a bit more detail, Dave, that Paddy's kind of teed up the importance of that Stoke game next weekend. Uh, as, as you highlighted before we started recording, sort of predominantly been playing in a 4 2 3 1, something that may favour Norwich, although it'd be interesting to see if they tweak that. This is such, a, 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 again, as Paddy's described, they're such an important game in terms of Norwich showing their character and their mentality and their ability to bounce back, I guess, from, from the adversity of, of the last week or so. You know, I'd imagine Farker's quite looking forward to the week off because he's had six press conferences in seven days, hasn't he? <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, as much as we get on well with him and he, he's a good bloke and he's, you know, uh, very open and, and he's always controlled. He never really loses his temper and stuff with the, with the media, does he? he um, he's He's got that good public persona. I'm sure he's quite happy to have a few days to not have to justify every single nook and cranny of this promotion push. So, yeah, it, it does have a feel of a big game. I think we've got to remember that, yeah, they were, were they 3-0 up or 3-1 up at Stoke where by the time Buendia was sent off, I think it was 3-0, wasn't it? And um, but Krull, of course, had limped off in the first half. So they were significantly better than Stoke before Buendia's first double yellow card um, of the season. So the, there's a big onus on that man, of course, as we've already said, um, not just for the situation, but to make up for that night, because that similarly to the um, second yellow against Borough was naive, wasn't it? Whether it was a harsh yellow, it can be argued, but it was, he gave the referee a decision to make on both occasions, didn't he? So I'm sure he'll be fired up. Emmy's fired up for every game, isn't he? But he really sort of owes his team one here to, to, to dig in and, and make that difference that we all expect him to be, to be the... Forty million pound player that he's talked about in the championship. So Stoke, yeah, I I think Pad's right. Michael O'Neill's far too pragmatic and, and and experienced to to not try and frustrate Norwich. But you you look at the fixtures that they've got coming up, and that's followed by away to Coventry, home to Rotherham, away to Birmingham and Wickham. Now you'd be very very disappointed even after this little negative run this reality check which is going to happen in any promotion season isn't it there there were points like this in 2018-19 they just get forgetting because forgotten sorry because of all the good stuff don't they um at the moment it feels raw and it feels rubbish but if they go and win just three of that that five then they're back on track aren't they no problem they'll probably still be in the top two but you'd look at those five and you'd be very disappointed if Norwich lost any of them you could maybe accept one loss in amongst all of it. And then Brentford at home, early March, midweek, Wednesday night, almost certainly will be picked up by Sky. Then if if Friday night was you know big enough, that could be an absolutely titanic clash. And it's probably a good point to sort of talk about that going into Friday night, I was really hopeful, perhaps sort of everyone had been fired up a bit by Daniel's monologue, but I was hoping that it could be a night like at Leeds two years before when that was really the night that they set, showed that they mean business and that they were 
chasing the Premier League, wasn't it? And the atmosphere that night was just brilliant. Um, I think Pad's still humming, marching on together under his breath. <laughs> That's the one thing I always remember of that night. I was getting out of the car and you just, in your own little world, sort of enjoying the atmosphere, going, marching on together. Good tune, That's yeah, a good tune. Oh, I, like, I like the Sheffield United song. That's a whole different podcast. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah. Um, but the, the, the big thing on Friday night, of course, with a big game like that, with the intensity and the importance that's on it, without any fans... It's uh, it's not the same occasion, is it? It's not memorable. And, you know, I, I like watching my rugby, but the Six Nations has just started, isn't it? And football's bad without fans, but I think rugby really needs fans, doesn't it? Because of the physicality of it. And I, I just, I didn't even bother to watch England Scotland, to be honest, which is probably a good thing in the end. But anyway, um, it's going to be a really, really interesting run of, of fixtures. And, and there's every opportunity, every chance that by the time we get the other side of the Stoke game, that the whole mood would have completely changed again and that everyone will be feeling really optimistic. Yeah, absolutely. You lads want to tune into Test Match uh, Cricket on Channel 4 at the moment. That's uh, that's a good watch. Obviously, not not really hindered by the lack of fans either. So, um, uh, that's uh, that, so if anything, feels uh, feels the same in India at the moment. From true crime to football, Brexit to folklore. For more great podcasts from Archant, head to audioboom.com slash channel slash Archant. Pad, uh, let's let's all reflect on on the game in, in a bit more depth. Then, of course, it was it was kind of I know we can talk about Conor Hurahan's brilliance and and it was a fine strike, but the two goals really coming from two mistakes from two players who have performed really consistently this season in Tim Krul and, and Kenny McLean. It kind of captures the moment in many ways of of where Norwich City are at the moment. Yeah, I mean, I think I wrote um, after the game. I, I don't remember. I'm, I'm prepared to be. Proved wrong, it wouldn't be the first time. But for me, for Krull, that's probably the first one since he dawdled at Arsenal and Aubameyang nipped in towards the end of the Premier League season, you know, in terms of a, an absolutely nailed-on graphic error by by the keeper. Um, and obviously, you know, there was still a little phase of play to do and there was a lot of yellow shirts between IU and, and how he turned and swivelled. But ultimately, none of that would happen if he just comes and takes the ball, as he does countless times in games. Um at home, away, wherever, you know, when the pressure's on as well, you know, he's normally very secure. Um, and it was an aberration. And, you know, with him, I just think, you know, we have to cut him some slack because he's had such a block of games and, and period of time that he's missed because of the thigh injury. We're talking about Stoke. It was the Stoke away game where he limped off. Um, whether there was a bit of a miscommunication between Daniel and his sports science and fitness team, but but it felt like he was out longer than, they expected him, or certainly his head coach did. So, you know, there was all that. Then he gets himself back. Uh, Coventry, I think, off the top of my head, wasn't it? Was it Coventry or Barnes at home? And and then he gets diagnosed with coronavirus, has to self-isolate. And by all accounts, Dave, you spoke to him, I think, after one of the, was it Cardiff, one of those games, and he said he was still feeling a little bit of fatigue. And, you know, we can't obviously put ourselves in his shoes, but, but you know, he clearly doesn't feel, I mean, there was a, because I go back to the three days before the Millwall game, where he's completely misjudged that ball that came across from the from the sort of Millwall left hand side, uh, and Kenny Sahor has almost been surprised that he didn't take it and has headed it over and it landed on the roof of his net. Second half, about six yards out, and again I thought at the time, well, that's an uncharacteristic Tim Krul error, um, and then you know an even bigger one against Swansea. So just at the high levels we're used to seeing, he's not there at the minute, and that might be a factor that he's not in his rhythm. Daniel talks often about players who are coming back from fitness issues or obviously now with being out with this virus, you know, they need games to get back in their rhythm. And uh, and it looked to me like maybe just, and it's just in those key moments. I mean, the rest of what he's done in the games has, has been what we would expect, you know, his, his distribution and his organisation, you know. But as Daniel said, in the very, very top games with a promotion rival, you need to make no mistakes whatsoever. And unfortunately, he made a big one. And then, yeah, Kenny McLean. And Daniel actually threw in Ben Gibson, who gave the ball away initially, or, or, or maybe didn't give it away, but maybe played a pass into McLean, which wasn't the easiest ball for him to take. But thereafter, you know, that's poor from Kenny. And as Daniel said, again, another one, you know, who's had to deal with the virus uh, and been out and just come back. But prior to that, by Daniel's admission, 
Norwich's best player for probably the previous month, five weeks. And I don't think too many Norwich fans would disagree. So for two absolutely influential players in the same game were literally, what was it, separated by about 10 minutes either side of half time to make errors as they did. Totally out of character for them, for that team this season. So, you know, you just think you almost have to write it off and say, well, Tim Krull won't do that again this Saturday. There's no way. You know, he's just too good a keeper to, to make an error of that magnitude again. And, and I'm sure if Kenny McLean got a similar ball this Saturday, he wouldn't be looking to cushion it down into to no man's land, particularly when you've got the quality of Hurahan around, uh, which was a cracking finish. He still had plenty to do. Um, but yeah, I, I, I'm increasingly now, as we move on from the Swansea game, just thinking, treat that in isolation. You know, that wasn't really the Norwich we have come to associate this season. And, and I'm not talking about the free-flowing uh, end of it, because I don't think we've seen that really bar the odd game. You know, Bristol City away was good in terms of the offensive power. But just that game management, if you want to use that phrase, you know, that's where they've been excellent this season is managing games, is doing enough. And uh, that's why it was a bit of a shock to the system to see what they did on, on Friday night in such a big game. But, you know, as I say, Daniel would talk to you about not wanting to use excuses, but he'd talk about the schedule, the, the workload, the travel, and, and and also, and I would add, like, issues around, you know, the players. You know, there's players there who, for, for whether it's a virus or whether it's injuries, have not had a consistent run of games. And maybe, as I say, just at the very, very top games, we're talking about Brentford in March, but the top, top opponents, small margins decide the outcome of these games. And unfortunately, Norwich fell the wrong side of it. Um, but I certainly wouldn't expect Tim Krull to make a gaff as big as that again for, a, for quite a considerable period of games. And, and considering the start of his Norwich career, they've been they've been fairly rare after that, haven't they? I remember the one against uh, West Brom, was it, where, which was particularly bad. We haven't seen anything to to those levels on a consistent basis since then. Um, Dave, uh, it's it's an interesting point that Paddy touches upon because there are lots of players who have come back from injuries, from COVID, from suspension, from from whatever, um, and, and they seem to have come back in a fairly big group. Luca, Lucas Rook being being one of them. You could name several others. Adam Eder that maybe are, are playing and are yet to really showcase the rhythm that they showed maybe before those injuries or, or whatever that, that put them out is the fact that there's been a group of those coming back at the same time and, and obviously the increased substitutions that Norwich have. Is is this contributing to maybe Norwich's overall lack of rhythm, the fact that there's individual players within that group that maybe aren't up to their full speed themselves? And on a wider point, that's probably contributing to Norwich City lacking a little bit of momentum. Yeah, I think quite possibly. Um, just on crawl quickly, um, you mentioned the Aubameyang mistake at Arsenal he did he did a Cruyff turn against Borough didn't he in in the home game and he got away with it he nailed it and I, at the time I remember thinking I can't believe he's done that again after um after it went wrong for him at Arsenal but he got away with it on that occasion and also what Pad reminded me of while he was talking is that we've got quite a strange situation likely this week haven't we because Daniel has teed it up he's almost uh played chicken with the uh, manager of the month panel um if my if the timings as they usually work the Manager of the Month nominations for January will probably be announced on Thursday and then the winner on Friday. So we could have a situation where Brentford go top on Wednesday, Barker gets nominated for Manager of the Month on Thursday and then wins it for the first time this season on Friday, <laughs> which would be quite awkward timing, wouldn't it? But um, hopefully just more fuel fuel for his personal fire. But the, the, as you've teed it up there, Connie, yeah, I, I, no one stepped up for him, I think is probably the way way to put it um you know Mumba also back from COVID Kintia's not really come back into things yet because Daniel's spoken about that he he's actually really felt the effects of it hasn't he that he has been drained and and, and hasn't been able to find his top level in, in training and stuff yet um so you've got that you've also got the Yanudis factor which I guess we'll we'll, we'll come on to a bit later in that um Sorensen came back in for him but really that none of Pueheta, Dowell or Hernandez have re-emerged quickly and shown that they can offer an alternative to Emi Buendia or really push hard for a place in the team is been has been the biggest problem, isn't it? And when Pueheta plays, uh, I wrote in the six things after the Borough game that I thought Hernandez should have been playing because of his understanding with Puki. He knows Puki well, he knows how to feed him. Pueheta to me doesn't feel like he fits this Norwich City team at the moment. Um, I'd like to be proved wrong because I like him as a player. I think he's he's got the potential to be really exciting, isn't he? He's got great speed. Um, he's got a, a sort of the eye for something special, but we've not really seen him nail anything on, on those terms. That The best 
probably his best contribution at the moment is that opening 15 minutes against Coventry when he was involved in both goals in the FA Cup, wasn't it? And even then, he went quite off the boil in that game and, and Norwich were sort of hanging on, weren't they? Because Daniel Barden was was man of the match in the end in, in, in that game, wasn't he? So that's kind of Daniel's big problem and probably the big focus for, for training this week is that if none of those players step up again, um, then... The, the strength in depth. Remember in the middle of the injury crisis and we were talking about all these brilliant assets that Norwich didn't have availability of. But then when you look back, their best run of the season has been when Michael McGovern was in goal, Jacob Sorensen was at left back, um, all those various injury problems. You know, at one point, Marco Stephen was playing up front for two games, as we then found out with a um, immune system knocking virus. So it was basically dead on his backside play, trying to play those two games, wasn't he? And shouldn't have been playing. They were really up against the wall. And a bit like the Manchester City game, that famous win, when they were they had no right to be winning that game, did they? They were decimated by injury. They that 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 is what brought the best out of them almost. And then that little run when all those players were out, we look back on it and that's actually when the best set of results came. So the squad game is definitely a big, big issue for Farker to balance out and f- find the right rhythm again. But ultimately, I think we still we all know what the best eleven probably is, don't we? If when everybody's fit and with Wendy back, hopefully Campwell another week to sort of recharge his batteries. Hopefully Pookie the same. Um, I know some people are talking about Adam Eder coming in, but I can't see that because he's he's still the main man, even though it is what, eight games without a goal, goal from open play. I think once you see the the strongest team, hopefully, you know, no injuries ahead of the Stoke game, then I think everyone will feel a, a little bit more confident. But yeah, it, it's worrying that just the exit of the, the absence of Buendia has, has knocked them off course. Not massively, of course, you know, that they didn't lose against Mill and Middlesbrough. I think people feel like they were losses, don't they? But they weren't. Um, but it, it has knocked them off killer a little bit. Yeah. Um... Pad, Dave spoke about Placetta there, and there's there's been some debate on sort of social media about him and his performances. It, it kind of feels to me like, um, and, and Dave's right, I think his, his best sort of contribution was definitely that Coventry game. But just prior to his injury, he felt like possibly he was finding his rhythm and acclimatising a little bit to English football, and then obviously got the injury and and had to pretty much start again. What do you make of of him and and, and more specifically Farker's decision to include him over Hernandez because? Um, I, I think on the evidence of, of the last two games, there, there will be supporters maybe questioning why that has been the case, why Plochetta has been playing ahead of, of, of Hernandez, who has obviously got a track record of, of contributing in, in, at this level. It was eight goals and, and 10 assists last time Norwich were in the Championship when they won the title. What, what have you made of, of the Polish international and, and his contribution so far, I suppose? Yeah, well, I'll just echo what Dave's saying there, but Firstly, I'll tell you, I think it, if it's a choice out of them two for, for Stoke, I think it would be Hernandez now. Because Daniel said after the game Friday, he was impressed. He thought he was a step forward from Anel. He obviously was one of those three who came on in that triple change around the hour mark just before. Um, and he felt he'd, what he'd seen then in that 30 minutes did mark it a step forward for Anel. So I think if he's going to choose out of them two, it will be Anel. And that probably answers your question, why has he been Puerta? Because he probably felt Anel... Fitness-wise, we keep talking about it, rhythm wasn't quite, in his opinion, uh, where Puerta was. Now, ultimately, Puerta has got the nod and hasn't taken his opportunity. You know, Millwall again. It seems to be a pattern with the lad. They've talked about Cov game where he started brightly, faded. He started brightly midweek at Millwall. You know, there was a couple of shots he got off against his compatriot, cutting in off the right-hand side. Um, and then, but much like the rest of the team, second half, he was anonymous, really, at Millwall. And... But that that's kind of marked his a lot of his games, I think, for Norwich. And I think you made a good point there, Connor. He did get that injury. And I think prior to that, you know, I mean, I'll go back to that first month or so of the season where he got his first goal um, and he was very bright and, and very positive and, and probably just feeding on the adrenaline of coming into English football. Everything was new. Everything's exciting. And he was in a team that was, was picking up the odd result. Um, and, of course, then he goes and gets his you know senior call-up to Poland as well. So... The wind was at his back and, and maybe, it, you know, injury combined with the gruelling and relentless nature of the championship this season, unlike any other, that seems to have sapped his confidence a little bit, sapped his energy a little bit. Um, and maybe he's beginning to doubt himself uh, because he doesn't look the, the same 
confident lad on the pitch for me compared to the start of the season when he first came in. And that's understandable, you know, just off the top of my head, Mario Vrancic, Marco Stiepman, their first seasons in English football were pretty low-key affairs. They they, they needed a full team to acclimatise and understand particularly what the championship was all about. And I think he's one who probably would next season onwards begin to, to maybe feel within himself that I'm probably a, a frontline option here and I'm actually in the 11 on merit and my performance levels justify that. I think he... It, when you watch him now, it feels like he knows he's probably, if they had all their players fit and available, he'd be on the bench. And maybe that, for a young player trying to make his way in England, is is just at the back of his mind. And, and almost like he needs to perform every time he gets an opportunity. And he's too anxious, maybe, to try and, and, and affect the play and, and just go and play your natural game. Daniel was asked by a Polish journalist about two or three weeks ago about Pueta. And he said, look, for a debut season, very happy with him. But there are a lot of areas of his game he needs to work on. He talked about his work with his right foot. Uh, he talked about taking the ball in tight spaces. Um, and there's no doubt about it. He, he looks raw and, and he looks probably what he was when he was recruited, which was a guy who's had a good season or two in Poland for a, one of the lesser light clubs. Uh, and there's obviously an element of, of gamble about that. Yes, they hope he rounds himself into a very decent signing. But Right here, right now, he doesn't look ready to to impact Norwich's games at the top end of the championship from the start of games. So um, I think that's just the, the top and bottom of it. And it's it's a little bit harsh for me if fans are getting on his back because there needs to be a bit of an allowance made to reasons I've already stated. Um, you know, the time to judge him is probably next season and the season after. I think now is too premature. But, you know, ultimately he's, he's had an opportunity and he hasn't really taken it. But for me, you know, if we're talking about Norwich's an offensive unit, then it's not Poeta alone. It's Timu Puki now. It's Mario Vrancic has not offered anything in terms of attacking positions for me. He's had eight or nine games. I just look for the pod. And the only assist, he's not scored a goal. The only assist he's contributed was his flick header for Hanley um, at Cardiff, which isn't really in my book an assist. It's not Mario threading the ball through an eye of a needle. You know, his productivity in the 10 role, not good enough. So, Kieran Dowell hasn't really grasped it when he's added the odd cameo. Um, he looks another one who, who lacking a bit of self-belief to me, and he's obviously had his injury issues. So, you know, for me, it's unfair to single out Puerta. It's it's a collective, you know, really, they're not as a collective unit. And, and ultimately, no goals in four games, one shot on target the other night, no shots on target against Middlesbrough. The stats don't lie in this area. You know, Norwich is an, is an attacking offensive team aren't functioning at the minute. And that there's many reasons for that. Not simply get Poeta out, get somebody else in and it's suddenly going to click or get Buendia out or bring Buendia back in and it's going to click. You know, they were, they, they were fitful with Buendia in the side a lot of this season as well. So um, that's really, for me, the one, if you boil it all down, that's where Daniel has to get it right now between now and the end of the season. If he can extract actual goals and assists from his attacking four, if you want to say that, the, front player and a three behind, then I think defensively they've shown. Defensively, they're, they're not that far off Swansea for me. So really the key to what happens between now and the end of the season is can whatever four he puts on the pitch week in, week out, actually add some end products. You know, maybe not in the quantities Brentford are mustering, but certainly more than they're producing at the minute, which isn't good enough. And that is a collective. So that's a long-winded way of saying I think any criticism of Quetta on his own is probably uh, unfair all round. No, I would agree. I think I think there's definitely the raw materials there of a of a of a decent player. It's just the adaptation and and, and the areas that you've you've spoken about as well. I do wonder if we'll see a a free behind Team Ipuki of of Campwell, Hernandez, and and, and Buendia for Stoke. Uh, maybe Campwell in in that ten position. Um, it, it, there were some nice bits from him um, against Swansea, but again, overall contributed to to a fairly um, to a fairly poor attacking effort. Uh, at the Liberty Stadium against a very good defensive side. Um, Dave, the other real, I guess, question mark and, and, and point was uh, Jakob Sorensen coming back in for Dimitris Yanoulis, the uh, new left-back that signed. There's been a lot of excitement about his arrival. And I know, uh, obviously, we know internally there's there's been a lot of excitement at, at signing a player of his calibre. But Daniel sort of dipped him out after two games, two very difficult opening games in the Championship <laughs> against a Neil Warnock side and a trip to the Den to face Millwall. What did what did you make of of that decision? Is is that reflective of his performance, or do you just kind of feel that's because of the workload and um, maybe because of those two games and um, the this kind of culture shock that maybe they would have provided him? 
no, I think Daniel made the right decision. I think everybody, when the teams dropped, there was very wide agreement that it was the right thing to do. More on reflection, it's uh, from what we know of Farker and the way he does things, it's more of a surprise that he chucked him straight in, isn't it? The, the, the one that you, I always remember is Buendia. Um, he really eased Buendia into the championship, didn't he? And everyone wanted him to be starting and he, he kept held, holding him back and holding him back. And eventually he let him go, didn't he? Um, but with Yanulis, he was obviously tempted by the fact that he'd played three games already for Powell earlier in the month, um, was you know fit, ready to go. But it, it's about more than that, isn't it? It's about getting on the same wavelength as your teammates, getting used to the rhythm of of a new division. And, you know, we saw, other than the second half against Middlesbrough, really, when we did see some flashes of what he could do going forward and he, he looked to be getting his uh, uh, sort of teeth stuck into the situation. Otherwise, he, he just didn't look like he he fitted into the team and that he quite knew where he was supposed to be and as I wrote a column which was after the Bristol City game um so in the pink and on the Saturday after saying that Sorensen had set a high bar and that the issue now is that you've got that out of position uh player and anybody whether it's Kintyre or Yanulis they've got to hit a certain standard or or Norwich fans as we saw immediately are going to be saying we'll get Sorensen back there because he he has that little run in the season when they kept managing to to find the way to results despite the injury crisis. He played a big part in that, didn't he? And we all know that he, you know, he's not a left back. Positionally, he doesn't quite look right there a lot of the time. Sometimes he um, doesn't get things right, but he can always put his foot in. Defensively, he's pretty solid. He didn't really do anything wrong the other night, did he? And he it was actually him linking with McLean to and and then he played Cantwell through for Pookie's big chance at nil nil, didn't he? So. You know, I don't think Sorensen did anything amazing on Friday night. I, I would imagine that Yanulis will come back in against Stoke because Daniel will have had a full week in training with him, hopefully, uh, to really drill him on what he wants. And then uh, Stoke are a, a team where you would hope that in a home game, it's one where it works to then bring him back in because long term, he is the better option. You're not going to be wanting to go in, into the Premier League with Sorensen as your left back, are you? you? You need somebody who is an international left back. Um, and hopefully, from everything that we know about the lad, if he can bring that all together and fit into the Norwich team, then he could be a real asset. And that's why they've agreed to pay, what, £6 million for a permanent fee if they go up. Um, but it's an interesting one. Um, and, and I just think, probably on reflection, Daniel will maybe think, Perhaps I shouldn't have put him straight in. Perhaps I should have just persisted with Sorensen for a little bit longer. Um, and the other side of that is what happens with Kintyre, isn't it? If if he is feeling himself again and and, and able to sort of fitness wise um, play to his best in training this week and, and really pushes for his for his place, then then maybe he can get back in. But um, I probably put it from what we've seen of him in sort of a similar camp to Bohetta that does he really fit the plan A? Does he get the best out of Pookie? Does he? work with the rest of the team in, in the way that they want when they're playing at their best. I'd say Sorensen has almost fitted into that better just because it's been keep it simple, defend that role, um, work with Campwell, have that relationship. And it and it's fitted in well because the rest of the team is good enough. Um, but yeah, certainly a really interesting situation to see how that unfolds from here. Someone said to me uh, on Thursday, actually, before the game, that he's one of those players, I guess, similar to, to Alex Tetty in some regards, that you, you kind of notice him more when he's not there. And I think maybe that's been the case in, in yeah. the last two games in, in particular. It will be interesting, I think, when we eventually get there to to see how he plays in, in midfield. Um, before we kind of reflect on, on deadline day, just to, to finish the pod, um, pad the results from yesterday. We were recording Sunday morning, so all the games have have taken place. Brentford obviously beat Middlesbrough 4-1, um, 19 games unbeaten for them. Stoke uh, drew with with Reading, uh, who, who kind of persisted in, in their in their playoff push. Um, Watford uh, drew with with your boys Coventry and um, Bournemouth under Jonathan Woodgate's caretaker stewardship um, beat Birmingham 3-2. So probably realistically, as you said at the top of the show, Pad, I don't think we, we expect uh, Reading, Watford or, or Bournemouth maybe to, to come into that top three debate unless they embark on a, a really good run of form but it's probably fair to say maybe now without <laughs> looking or sounding like Jose Mourinho that maybe the pressure now is is on Brentford because they, they really do look like the, the side to beat in the division at the moment 4-1 win against Middlesbrough who we were very um, who, who we praised a lot after after their performance at Carrow Road last weekend very defensively astute um, Thomas Frank has, has got them well drilled considering they lost 
both Ollie Watkins and, and, and Ben Rama to Premier League clubs as well. It's been it's been quite the rebuild from them. How how do you see this race panning out now? Twists and turns is the phrase Ben Gibson used. I think, I think you adopted it at the start as well. What does Norwich City need to do to ensure that they they that he says only a blip and that they don't get sort of thrown completely off course by the last uh, week or so of, of, of what is a, a really decisive month for them in that promotion race? Yeah, I mean, Dave, Dave mapping out those next few fixtures, that alone tells you that, you know, they've had a gruelling run of fixtures and, and really haven't felt the right side of it. But if they do return to the levels they had hit prior to, then they should harvest enough points in the next batch of fixtures to, to, be, to be in this... Well, I think it will be nip and tuck between those three between now and the end of the season. And at the risk of repeating myself, I, I do think you cannot underestimate um, whether it's Farquhar and his coaches, who are still the same characters we were two seasons ago, whether it's the core leadership group, Hanley, um, Krull, Max Aarons, even you'd include in that, Emmy Buendia, Timu Puki, even Todd Cantwell. These lads know what it takes to get over the line when it is nip and tuck. Um, Brentford don't know that. Uh, as a collective, there might be individuals. I think Pontus Janssen's there, is he, if I'm mistaken? So, uh, you know, he was there with Leeds. But um, Swansea, again, you know, Ryan Bennett knows what it takes because he was part of that Wolves team who, who cut a sway through the championship a few years ago. But as a collective, I just, with Swansea, I look at them and I think, you know, I don't, I've not looked at it forensically, but it feels like they're naming more or less the same 11 every week. And, and you know, the, the nature of the championship, there will be, periods where between now and the end of the season they'll be without some key players and can they maintain the level that they're at at the minute? I'm not sure. I mean, Steve Cooper, their manager, was quick to talk up at their lack of resource relative to a lot of clubs, both inside the top 10 and currently outside the top 10. So he's basically more or less saying that if they, for me, I read between the lines there that, you know, they get an injury or they get a suspension or whatever, or, or there, there you say it, but, but a coronavirus case or two to a key player... Um, can they maintain the ultra-consistent form that they're on at the minute? And Brentford, the question mark for me is, they choked last season. I, I think that's fair to say. Uh, not the playoffs, because they are a bit of a lottery, but certainly they had it literally in the palm of their hand to go up second behind Leeds. Um, and they threw it away in that final week. And yes, they've lost two players. They've brought in a, a Tony, and the majority of the group is still the same. Thomas Frank is still there. You're not telling me that is not at the back of their minds now. Is this season moves to its inexorable conclusion that we were here before, we didn't handle it. Now, they might be saying we're using that as motivation to put wrong the, or put right the wrongs of last season, and that's the way it may pan out. Certainly, there's no outward sign at the minute that, that, that what happened last season is, is really playing any part other than driving them on. And uh, if they maintain the current trend, then they will win the title for me. It's, it, they are the best side uh, in the division. I felt they would go pretty close when Norwich went there earlier in the season. Norwich were fortunate that night for me to get a point. Kenny McLean's deflected late strike, but setting that aside on the balance of the game, Brentford were a better team. The way they move it, I mean, they're very similar in terms of their style of play, but the intensity of their passing and the speed they move through the thirds, I don't think Norwich do that. I think it's far more measured, far more lateral on occasion. And then you're looking for a Buendia or a you know, Campbell or maybe now increasingly why they went out and got me Yanulis and Aaron's to inject some dynamism. But they just look a better attacking unit for me. And obviously the goals they're scoring would would, con- would confirm that is the case. So right here, right now, for me, Brentford win it. And then you hope, I, and I would believe Norwich would have enough over the next 18, 19 games to get the better of Swansea and go up in second place. Um, now, of course... Ivan Tony, heaven forbid, goes over on his ankle or worse and is out for any length of time, then you maybe reassess where Brentford are because they're so seemingly reliant on him. As Norwich were two years ago with Pookie, you know, 29 goals. He was the main man, uh, pretty much the main man. And Tony is fulfilling that role this season. They keep him fit. Then it's hard to see that they won't do enough over the piece to, to go up uh, and probably for me as champion. So, um, but as I say, I, I think Swansea are, are performing over and above, which is a testament to Steve Cooper and those players, but can they maintain this now? And, and of course, pressure will start to seep in. Expectation will start to seep in. It isn't little old Swansea. Um, no right to be there, but we're just going along for the ride. I mean, he keeps talking up. I saw him again after the game. We'll take one game. I mean, it's the cliche, but one game at a time. I'm not interested in looking beyond that. That's fine. You can give those sound bites out in the media, but internally, 
they will know they've got a massive chance and there's a lot of young players in and amongst the, the Ryan Bennett's and Andre Ayew's. So that for me is the interesting one of those three. I think Swansea are the weaker of those three. And um, if that is the case, I think Norwich will just have enough to keep their noses in front. But, you know, there's going to be, to use Ben Gibson's phrase again, plenty of twists and turns. So it won't be dull. Um, but we won't want that anyway, will we? Who wants to win the league by 20 points? You know, that's boring. <laughs> uh, exactly. You'd have to be a Man City fan to uh, to enjoy that, I think, at the, the, at the moment. Um, Dave, just finally deadline day. It was fairly quiet from a Norwich City perspective. Obviously, they added uh, Regan Riley from, from Bolton, very highly rated by all accounts. Seems like they, they beat a couple of Premier League clubs to his signature. But beyond um, a, a late sort of uh, inquiry from Huddersfield, who seemed to, to want to sign any striker, um, at every single club who who wasn't playing, um, he he's obviously now joined Croatian side Rijeka. I, I think it's it's said, although my Croatian's not the best. Rijeka, mate. There we go. There we go. Your Croatian's better than mine. Paddy's got the the Greek sorted, and you've got the Croatian, so we're sorted. <laughs> um, what 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 did what did you make of of, of their business overall on on deadline? That Norwich were never going to panic and sign a, a, a striker or, or whatever. Um, Kind of, I guess, shows their commitment to the long term that they've they've brought in a young lad from Bolton, and and obviously Josip Dermic getting him out for some first in football after the deadline, albeit, but getting him out for some football is is positive as well, both for him and for the club. Yeah, I, I've been to Croatia. It's a very nice place. Had a very nice holiday to Sepi and, and Dubrovnik, um, and and that's the big point with Dermic as well. He has Croatian roots. Um, his, uh, I think his parents are both Croatian. Uh, I believe the video for the hit song "No Tomorrow" uh, was was filmed on the Adriatic coast as well. The, the quite saucy video um, from uh, <laughs> everyone's favourite Swiss uh, pop star. But yeah, y- Josip has finally got his future sorted. And um, quite oddly, isn't it that it ended up being on? Well, Friday that was confirmed, uh, which is after our transfer deadline, but Croatia and quite a few European countries open until later in February. So I guess there might still be hope um, of Mo Leitner getting somewhere if he can take a break from selling his quinoa chips or whatever they are on on Instagram. Um, But yeah, Rijeka are fourth in the Croatian top flight. They're chasing Europa League qualification. So we all know that this is just, it's purely a shot window for him, isn't it? Both in terms of Switzerland and in terms of Norwich, um, we know that Rijeka, yes, it's a small club. They won't have much money at all. And the reports in Croatia said it was an extremely favourable financial deal. So they will be paying a very small amount of, of what are probably quite decent wages. But we've already seen that with Tom Tribal, haven't we? That Blackburn are apparently only paying £2,000 of his wages, so which is probably about 15 20% or something like that, isn't it? So it's just about him playing, hopefully. And scoring goals, and it seems unlikely to me that he can get into the Switzerland squad, and unless he really does bang a few goals in from here, he'd have to score sort of ten or something. I'd have thought between here and now to to get another chance of Switzerland ahead of the Euros. But from Norwich's point of view, if he can do that, then it makes him a lot more saleable asset in the summer because he doesn't have a future here, does he? That's that's quite clear. Um, Daniel at his presser. It, it hadn't been confirmed at that point. It was confirmed Friday morning, but um, you know, just agreed that for now, it's just it just needs to be settled. And ideally, the same with Leitner. Um, but we haven't really heard much in terms of links with him, have we? And um, that doesn't seem to doesn't seem to be happening, which is strange, given we know the the ability that he's got, and it's certainly two years ago in the Championship title winning season. Um, so yeah, but um, the young lad Riley from Bolton again, Daniel just emphasised very much academy signing at this point. Uh, apparently they pay 200,000 up front with potential add-ons uh, midfield. He only made a couple of senior appearances, but um, one that Bolton didn't want to lose, but basically he's on a scholarship deal. So um, when he's not signed professional terms and anyone can come in for him and um, apparently West Ham and, and Brighton had shown interest. So Norwich um, got in ahead of them. And then, and then of course your man, Connor, who um, <laughs> you, you sort of broke the story earlier in, in the month that Oyan Nyland was, uh, was going to be coming in and, uh, I think he put something on Insta, didn't he, on maybe Saturday, just showing that he'd been working hard on the training pitch at Colney. So um, you never know, he might be on the bench by the time we get to Stoke as well. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, that, that may give the the um, extra competition that Tim Krul needs as well to make sure that uh, that Swansea mistake isn't isn't something that we see any more of. Um, gents, thank you very much for, for joining me. Um, guys, thank you very much for listening as well. Of course, Future Radio 107.8 FM every Wednesday evening. You can listen to our show as well. Pinkin.com, of course, for all the latest Norwich City uh, news and views as we uh, look ahead now to Stoke City uh, next week, which feels increasingly like a very big game 
for Norwich. Thank you very much for listening. Stay safe and we'll see you soon.